This is a podcast from 2MBS Spine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Eleanor Fry is a leading Canadian-American cellist, gambist and researcher. She's made numerous recordings, many of which are world premieres and the result of long collaborations with other artists. The artistic director of Academia de Dissonanti, an organisation for performance and research, she's performed throughout the world and is now in Sydney making her Australian debut with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra for a series of concerts entitled Spanish Steps. We're fortunate that she's taken time out during her very limited stay here to come and be in conversation with me today. Eleanor Fry, welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thanks, Simon. Glad to be here. So is this your first time in Australia at all or just your first time professionally here? Yeah, first trip ever to this whole continent. And I've been here like 24 hours, a little more, and I really like it. I'm surprised, actually. It's amazing. Well, I hope you're, yeah. you're, I hope you're taking some time to see the place, not just in radio studios and rehearsal rooms. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, on the Spanish Steps program uh, with the Australian Brandenburg, there's a lot of Boccherini that you're performing. Can you tell us about some of the selections and why Boccherini is important? Yeah, Baccarini is a fantastic composer, very underappreciated and underplayed worldwide, although it's a famous enough composer that most people have heard of it, heard of him. But I really, really like this composer, and I find that that's one of the things I like about being a musician is I think that I single-handedly, with my energy and my time and my concerts, can um, influence the direction of repertoire, what gets played by the world. And I also can influence what people hear and maybe hopefully get other people to play more and more of the things that I find worthwhile. And so I try to encourage people to play Baccarini more and I program it a lot myself. Sometimes I've done whole tours in Canada of chamber music of just Baccarini programs and when I people ask me to play concertos, with, I often suggest that as an option um, because other composers ha- don't need advocates. Like nobody needs to be convinced about Vivaldi or Bach or, you know, it's like everyone's on board already. Yeah. So I think I can help just the, for the joy of listening that people realize, oh, wow, this is amazing and I, I want to hear more and... I, that's something I really like to do. Well, so. that's, that's the yeah. feeling I certainly get when I every time I hear that famous minuet uh, at weddings and, and <laughs> yeah. things. It's, it's just it's stops charming. Music. But there's yeah. a lot more to Boccherini than that, isn't there? It's true. There is a very famous boom. It's very charming, and so much of his music is fun to listen to. It's touching. Um, he was a cello player, so it feels really good under my hands, even though it's very um, virtuosic and challenging. It's just, it makes sense for me. Mm. And um, there's, there's nothing quite like a, a composer who plays the instrument, writing for the instrument, is there? It's it's really interesting to feel that um, you you move your fingers and you knew, know that he did that with his own hand at mm. some point. And you try to discover, well, would he have used this fingering or what did he mean by this? You get in a different mindset than you would with, say, Beethoven or something. Um, so it's just, it's a lot of fun and I... The whole program has a lot of Baccarini, but you really can't have too much. And 
I don't think people will be bored for even a second. It's mm. just so fun and charming and actually quite stunningly beautiful. Mm. So yeah. musically, how does he fit into like the, the history of music? I mean, I know, you know, J.S. Bach with the, mm-hmm. the equal temperament and, you know, Haydn, father of the symphonies and so on. So what's Boccherini's contribution there? Baccarini is in this time in the middle of the 18th century that we often call galant, like this gallant and uh, more light and um, simple and periodic music. And Baccarini is right before more famous composers like Mozart and Haydn, but a very similar time period. A lot of his music was written in the 1760s and 1770s as Mozart, because he was a child prodigy, also did. But he sort of straddles the two sides of the 18th century, naturally, because he's in the middle. And the music is maybe a little bit more flexible than we think of. Classical music has a lot of form and a lot of predictability in some ways. You know, you expect sort of a theme and then a second theme and then the bridge. And there's a lot of things that we study in music school that came out of classical music, uh, like Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven. But Baccarini doesn't quite fit into these um, forms. And I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but I guess what you can expect is that it's a very open imagination with more about color. And what he does a lot is I find that I like the most is he has a lot of moments of sort of time gets suspended Mm. where you kind of circle around and circle around and is sort of static, but that's not a a bad word. I like it. It's a um, still and motionless. And so you sort of get into the moment and then boom, you move on and it has a very strong effect. And I think he's literally genius at that. And there's also a lot of sweet and soft emotions. It's not about being monumental or massive or strong or, you know, it's more subtle than a lot of later music. Well, I think now we have to have some of the music, I think, and you've got a bit of Boccherini for your first choice. Uh, Why have you chosen this one and what is it? I really love his string trios because I play a lot of chamber music because it's two violins and a cello. And what he does is he lets the cello have a major role and often have melodies along with the violins who will play a little bit of accompaniment. And it's a very thin texture, just three musicians. And it's not so much about like a string quartet about the harmony or the blend. It's more like three singing soloistic parts. So the string trios are really fun for me as a cellist to play. And the one I chose, I just find to be very poignant and sad and beautiful.
The Adagio from Boccherini's String Trio No. 1 in G minor, performed by La Real Camera. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, cellist Eleanor Fry, who's joining the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra for Spanish Steps. Get along to brandenburg.com.au for more information and for tickets. So, Eleanor, what was your journey to the cello? How did it all start? Actually, I went to a concert with my family when I was five years old. It was a string quartet. And this is a really classic example of why representation is important in the world because in the string quartet, there were three men and one woman and the woman played the cello. And I grew up in the eighties in Seattle, Washington, uh, in the USA. And I think at that time there was a lot more, you know, sense of men do this and women do that. It was just more, um, gender, intensity or something. Now it's more fluid and more, it's just changed a lot, which is, I think, great. But when I saw the woman playing cello and I loved the sound, I thought, well, that's for me. I didn't even really consider the instruments the men were playing. After the concert, I ran up to the cellist and I said, can I touch it? And I wanted to see it. I I was really fascinated. And I said, I want to try, I want to try. And it took a while to convince my parents. I kept mentioning it for a couple years. So I only got one when I was maybe seven and a half or almost eight because they didn't know there were like really small ones, I guess. <laughs> um, and then I just, I, truly, maybe from the moment that I saw it, it was like an identity moment. I was like, oh, that's for me. Yeah. Or I like the sound. You weren't playing an instrument already, were you? No, I mean, my my parents are pretty musical and they have a piano and we played a little bit, but I wasn't studying super seriously. Um, I started with lessons, which is kind of rare. A lot of people start in school or something, but I started with lessons and I really liked my teachers were nice people who were really warm to me and I always looked forward to lessons and it was... It that always makes a difference. Yeah, it, it wasn't that hard for me. I mean, I just played kind of pretty well right away it just made a good sound and i had fun and i always then i just just kept playing yeah yeah so so when is there a point when you see that as the pathway to your future as a career well i would say i always was really into it and serious about it but i also liked some other things so it was the decision or the difficulty was deciding to let go of the things that i also was interested in um, and what were they? What I have to say was mostly I really liked history. Ooh. So well, I that thought that kind of fits together, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like I, you already see my, where this is going. I thought <laughs> you just play the modern cello, and then you do. All, there's like sort of a, a, there was sort of one path, and then I thought history was like you had to be an academic or write some books or something. I didn't, and then it took me a really long time to realize you could do it the same time. <laughs> and then once I started getting into early music like Baroque music, it was like a spark. And then I was complete. I was like my two natural interests were there in one. And then I was super into it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, another bit of music now. And uh, we're going to uh, change genre quite substantially with a bit of George Michael. And I, I suspect uh, <laughs> that is uh, contemporaneous with some of the stories you're telling just then. Is that right? Yeah. When I was about eight or nine, that was my favorite pop singer And I listened to this song, which is called Waiting for That Day. 
I've listened to it thousands of times in my life. I just really like it. So it just gives you a little slice of my sort of childhood. George Michael's waiting for that day. The choice of my guest in conversation, cellist Eleanor Fry, who's here to play with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. So, Eleanor, you mentioned that collision of, or the, or the unification, I should perhaps say, of the cello and history. So tell me about the period cello and, and getting involved with that. When do you first see a period cello and realise that's what I want to do? Well, first I played a little bit of Baroque music when I was in college, but I didn't know really that you could have a career doing that I was on the typical path of playing concertos and contem- I liked contemporary music a lot. So I was just doing that. And but you I were playing the Baroque music on a modern cello, right? Yeah, right. In my yeah. school or something. And sometimes like there was a production at the school of, of a medieval piece and I played in it and some drones and, you know, but I just didn't know that you could make your whole living or I just wasn't in my radar that I was doing the typical thing of going to school and playing the, the, the classic repertoire, Dvorak cello concerto and all those typical pieces and modern pieces. So it, it took me a long time to like realize there is this whole other side because I didn't live in Europe where that's a bigger, a bigger thing. Yeah. yeah. And to make a long story short, I, I started getting into it, hearing about things and getting I got a baroque bow and it just it was a long slow path but what really sparked the baroque interest was I fell in love with Italy and I wanted to go and live in Italy easy to do yeah everyone does right <laughs> yeah and I realized that the cello started in Italy so I devised this project where I would study the origin of the cello in Italy and that would make me have to be there um, it was so I applied for this grant, which is called a Fulbright, which is a, a sort of famous American grant, and I'm super lucky that I got it. And then I had this year where my whole job was to sit in my apartment and read about the origins of the cello and discover early cello. And whereabouts in Italy were you? I was in Lake Como. Oh. I know. Well, <laughs> I the, just, the interviews I over with. So I, I would repeat that year <laughs> gladly. Yeah. It was great. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. So for those who are unfamiliar with how a Baroque cello differs from a modern cello, can you explain it? 
Sure. I mean, it's not a huge, huge difference, but the main thing is we use strings made out of sheep's gut or ram's gut. So it's this natural fiber that has a different color to the sound. Um, some of the internal things inside the instrument are a little bit different. Um, the angle of the neck of the instrument is different. Um, often we use a different shaped bow. So there's these little things that when you take this detail and that detail and you add them up, it has a different color, a different sense of resonance. But what's most important is in your mind, of course, is, you know, sort of the traditions, reading treatises, thinking about how they might have thought about music and maybe how they might have connected it to language and rhetoric and um, how they would shape their phrases. And there's just this whole thing of studying and thinking about those choices and in interpretation, um, which, you know, are from your, your thoughts and your mind, and that changes how it comes out of the instrument. So this large group of people who want to do that mm. together. The, the, the hip movement. Yeah, historically informed <laughs> performance practice. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because one of the other things, of course, is that uh, a modern cello has a little spike that you rested on in the ground, but uh, Brock cello, you just have to squish it between your well, knees, don't you? it's funny because I didn't mention that on purpose oh. because I don't agree <gasps> that that is the difference between Baroque and modern because at the time of, let's say, 17th and 18th century, you see pictures of people resting the cello with a little spike. You see them resting on a pillow, putting it on a stool, resting it on the floor. And the option which you're going to see me, if you hopefully everybody comes to the concert, I put it between my legs. It was very typical for Baroque cellists now. But there wasn't a time in which there wasn't the spike as an option. Interesting. It was all sorts of things. It just wasn't standardized. And in our world today, things are more standardized. Modern cello is this, Baroque cello is this. And that's not the way they were thinking back then. It was more regional or individual and more variety. And so, sure, at some point it became more common for people to use the spike. And then some people made it longer and longer. And But really, plenty of people used a spike in the Baroque. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, a very different uh, sort of music now uh, with your next choice, Eleanor. Yeah, I wanted to play this little Renaissance piece because I find it really charming. It's only a minute long, and it's played on this instrument called the viola de arco, which I actually own one. And I think it's kind of like a very, very early cello because it has a carved back, but it has a lot of features of the viola de gamba family as well. And it's kind of a hybrid of those two families, which is actually more common in the 16th and 15th century to have instruments that are mixes of qualities where now we, like I said, we're, we want to be able to, to say this is this and that's that and put them far apart. But I think hundreds of years ago, there was much more variety and more mixed in the middle. So it's just a little, a little piece on the viola de arco that I find lovely. Thank you. 
Guillermo Ebreo's Fire con Misuras, the viola de Argo played by Alison Crum, the lute played by Roy Marks, the choice of my guest in conversation today, cellist Eleanor Fry. That's a, a really lovely little ditty, if I can express it in those terms, <laughs> isn't it? Um, now, I believe you, as you've mentioned before that, you own uh, an instrument like this um, and you don't just own one of those instruments. You've actually got quite a little collection of celli. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about them? Well, I mean, they're all my children and I love them equally. <laughs> no, I have five cellos and two viola de gambas. I'd love to get some more, but it's expensive and they're taking up a lot of room in my house. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's part of when I started doing Baroque music and early music. It's part of the fun that I discovered for myself that instead of playing one cello and trying to go up a kind of ladder where you know Casals was at the top and I and a bunch of other um, sorry to say but like white guys were at the top too and I was I just sort of jumped off that ladder and started expanding and trying a different size of an instrument. And some and some cellos have five strings, um, some are tuned differently or smaller or bigger and and I just really the instrument itself started to be more like a family in my mind mm. and have more breadth and more variety and for me that was very liberating and are also, they, they're all playable cellos yeah I mean I play them all and um, for different reasons and I've brought two here to Australia um, the one that for different I'll, pieces or just yeah. for, as a spare <laughs> <laughs> no they're quite different uh, one is um, is a kind of my classical cello that I play like Baccarini and Haydn and Beethoven. It's tuned like what you would see in a cello in orchestra, CGDA, and it's a very powerful, beautiful instrument. And the other one is a super small cello um, that's tuned like a violin, so it goes GDAE, so it's higher, and I play violin music on it. So you'll hear Ooh. a violin concerto that also could be played on a, this violoncello piccolo, a small cello. So those are my two colours. Can you yeah. do anything you like in terms of playing the violin music or are there sort of technical constraints because of the size of the instruments that you can't just play any violin concerto? Yeah, so because it's still lar- much larger than yeah. a violin, there's I stretch my fingers and I can't quite do what they can stretch and have a huge range just in, in your hand. Whereas with this small instrument, now I can have it bigger. I mean, I can ha- reach a bigger range than my bigger cellos, but it's still quite large. So um, if I were to play like a Bach violin fugue, where there's these huge chords and you have to twist your fingers around, it's just really hard for me. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I can try, but it might sort of, you know, not quite sound yes, great. Yes, the gaps between the notes. Yeah, or I might, I might have larger, to kind of jump yeah. or something. So I've tried hard violin music and um, sometimes succeeded and sometimes said, you know, this is beyond what I feel is working. Mm. Um, so is this a thing or are you sort of pioneering this I would violin on the cello? say I'm one of the first maybe to get super into it and interested, mm. but I'm not the only one in the entire world. But it's not like every Baroque cellist has a four-string small cello. Many people have a five-string cello, which we know was the instrument used in Bach six suite and a bunch of Bach cantatas. And that often you can tune it to this e, with this top string as E. Yeah, so the, the yeah. fifth string is the E string is above that, right. the, the A string. Yeah, but right. get, getting rid of the C string and just having four yeah. strings is it's kind of a different whole. So tell me more thing. about the, the five string thing. Do we? Well, have, maybe we haven't looked closely enough, but mm-hmm. I don't really see those out and about. It's just played, more rare, and I mean, imagine if you have only four strings, you have 
um, more space between the strings and there's two out of the four strings are on the edges so they have sort of freedom whereas now you have three strings in the middle with a five string and you kind of you get confused and you kind of hit them all at the same time and for an instrument like the viola de gamba which has six or seven strings they do it on purpose and the tuning is different with uh, thirds and fourths rather than fifths so and often they're playing chords and they have frets so like they're taking advantage of the fact that the strings are close together and and easy to hit at the same time whereas the regular cello you have this other properties that lead to some other freedoms so it's kind of like the five string is kind of like a problematic and yet also very flexible and has a huge range so you can see by just i'm i can't really describe it all in a a quick interview but you can see that each instrument has its own advantages and disadvantages Mm. and its own kind of qualities that i like to explore with mm. its repertoire and yeah, yeah. And, and therefore because it's easier to do some things and harder to do other things the kind of repertoire that ends up being written for the instrument does change yeah so you get yeah. different to uh, the viola de gamba so, so does the viola de gamba actually evolve into the cello or, or no, is it actually not at just all. a completely different instrument not at all it's like two whole different family trees that developed at the same time but the viola de gamba the bass instrument and its whole family was sort of just a bit more popular earlier than mm. the violin family sort of started to dominate or take over more later but they all they both existed at the same time and you know people changed they wanted maybe to have, violins are louder they can they're great for like outdoors or bigger spaces there's different desires of the composers yeah interesting does each of these instruments have a backstory that you know of or did you sort of pick them up cheap in a market <laughs> and have to restore them <laughs> Some are like what you just said, and some some I searched the world to try to find them. Like with the small cello, I'm playing the San Martini Concerto this week. I literally sort of sent the word out to a couple shops in the world that I knew could have access, and this one shop wrote me and said, I just saw one, and because I wanted a high-quality instrument that sounds good, that ha- has this really small size and that might have been intended for that originally. But other ones, like I have this instrument called the American Church Bass, and it was in pieces when I got it, and it was cheap. It's an original that is by a good maker, but it was just in bad shape, and I paid almost as much to restore it as I paid for it. And, you know, but I love the sound now. I mean, so it's not necessarily how much it cost me, but it's all part of for me building the story of the cello for myself and having all these different colors and these different literally stories that go with the instrument and with its own repertoire and then I have so much fun like playing them in different contexts Mm. yeah our next piece of music now and uh, well we're actually going to hear you perform uh what have you got for us here Eleanor yeah so I chose a minuet from a duo by Giuseppe Clemente Dallabaco this particular movement is not very even with the parts but his duets in general are usually more even with two cellos and the the other cellist is this wonderful amazing cellist named Catherine Jones who is Australian <laughs> and so I thought that was kind of a fun connection with Australia and this minuet is just so charming I love it to bits and Dal Abaco is probably the composer that I've worked on the most in my whole life I have two CDs of his music i I'm the editor of his complete cello sonatas, the first edition, and it's an amazing composer who I think is going to be more and more and more important in the history of cello, and 
I hope you'll agree that it's just delightful music. en rondeau from the Labaco's duo in A minor. The cellists were Catherine Jones and, well, the lady sitting in front of me right now, Eleanor Fry. She's in Australia to perform with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Get along to brandenburg.com.au for more information and for tickets. So, Eleanor, you talked about researching uh, that composer and, and, and uh, cataloguing all, all his music. Where do you find this? Is it on sort of dusty, dusty monastery shelves in Italy or is it, um, is it already out there and known? Yeah, well, actually, a few people did work on Dal Abaco um, before me, and so I didn't catalog it. He, um, there was a person, um, a musicologist named Ulrich Eser, who cataloged and g- gave these numbers. But what I did is I gave it more time and attention. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, no problem. And I made these world premiere recordings, and I made my own modern edition of the music, which was... Well, I suppose that's what I'm meaning, yeah. Yeah, so, so in a is, manu- it was that? in manuscript before, yeah. and now I made it sort of easier for, say, a typical cellist today to read and understand and corrected some errors and I wrote a preface to the edition and I tried to make this thing more accessible to other cellists and listeners and then I also play it in concert and so I'm just giving all this time and energy and and love more oxygen yeah I'm just like loving this music (laughs) and putting it out in the world and saying 
we need this. So is it just an historical accident that that music wasn't in that form until you got to it? I don't know why the powers above or whatever decided that it would be me to do a lot of this work. I just I think it's amazing and I'm so happy that I get to be the one to give it a first chance in a lot of ways. But it just happened to be in a manuscript and not published. It was in the British Library, but people didn't know that it was so good. I don't know. I, it's hard to say why. Yeah. It's sort of an accident of history yeah. sometimes, isn't it, though? Why didn't it come out 10 years earlier? Or well, I'm not 20... 10 years. I'm talking like 100 years. You know. Yeah. I mean, things like Bach had revivals already in the in the 19th century. People were reviving his music. And Vivaldi, maybe it's because of certain libraries that had his manuscripts. I mean, there's different reasons why mm. certain composers came out and became well-known and popular to us. And others were just realizing now that they were important when they were alive, but kind of forgotten now. Mm. And maybe we need to give it more time and attention. And then maybe some that have been given maybe too much attention can uh -huh. kind of fade a little. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to uh, influence people and say, okay, look, Baccarini and Dal Abaco, let's keep giving love and time to this and mm. listening and programming and performing. Yes, well deserved. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, if I can just pick you up on making corrections to some of that, is that errors that you spotted in the composer's manuscript or errors in the subsequent transcriptions? So it's in the manuscript and you'll go through and they're not all in the composer's hand. Some is, are copyists and sometimes things are hastily copied and they'll just be a note on a line that should be on the, the space above it. And so all you're doing is correcting from a D to an E. And, and it's obvious. Yeah, and it's clear because it sounds terrible. Mm. And I had to sort of play through. Even in my printed edition, sometimes we're finding more errors because given it a little more time, <laughs> there are 35 cello sonatas. So that's a lot of music for me to try to go through. And I didn't like... <laughs> I played it, but There's I didn't go. There's always going to be a typo. Yeah, there are still plenty of things to figure out. So things like that. Yeah. I want to ask about Academia de Dissonanti, which I mentioned in the intro. Can you describe what that organization does? Yeah. So a few years ago, I wanted to um, start a kind of ensemble slash organization for activities um, based in Montreal, Canada, which is where I live, that would act as an umbrella for all the things that I do, like putting on concerts, making recordings, uh, some teaching activities, some research activities, and then hopefully it will grow. I don't think it could ever grow into something as incredible as the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. It's an amazing, huge thing that I can't believe. But my vision is that we'll start to do things like have guests come do their research and present some of their work with us. And yeah, just be sort of a, a center for exploration and moving forward in early music. And then I want to participate usually and I get to be the artistic vision behind that. And it also is great that some of the projects are separated from me as a person, especially financially, because for years I was, you know, say making a CD with grants and donations and stuff, but it all goes through me. And now it gets to be 
separate from me, which is a, a good thing, I think. Is it somewhere yeah. where you can store extra cellos so you can have more than five or six? <laughs> 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 yeah, I actually had a second apartment for a while that was the kind the of cello office. Place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, they, they fit in a big closet. It's, it's livable. <laughs> yeah. I should hope so. Yeah. Well, another piece of music now, and we're going to J.S. Bach. What's this one? Well, even though I've been talking about Baccarini and Dallabico, I mean, I just have to say my absolute favorite composer is Bach, and I love playing and performing Bach. I never get tired of it. And as you could tell with talking about this small cello where I play violin music, one of the reasons why I have that cello is because I love violin music. They have so much good music, and I'm super jealous. So I tried to play this F minor sonata a few years ago, and I, well, I mean, I did it. I didn't just try, and it was kind of strange because it's an octave below and I really like this piece and I enjoyed you know having the opportunity to steal violin repertoire and so now you're going to hear it on the actual violin uh, with a really wonderful person um, Reinhard Goebel who is one of the great pioneers of the early music movement in Europe and someone I admire a lot so and it's just one of my favorite violin pieces.
the opening movement of J.S. Bach's Sonata for Violin and Harpsichord, number no. 5 in F minor. Reinhard Goebel, the violinist there, the harpsichordist Robert Hill. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the cellist Eleanor Fry. Eleanor, have you ever thought of recording your little cello music playing the violin? <laughs> well, I, I recorded the San Martini Concerto, which we're performing, and I also stole a little bit of Tartini's sonatas. I'm exploring that. But that's the most I've done with this instrument. I mean, there's so many projects, it's hard to decide what to... Priorities, isn't it? Yeah, and recordings are really expensive, and I can't just, you know, have 16 per year for everything that I like or that I think the audience might enjoy. I sort of have to choose what to do, and Dal Abaco is taking a big part of that. So maybe, maybe I'd play some more violin music someday on recordings, but it's not definitely in the next two years, let's say. I've already sort of booked myself up. Yeah. <laughs> well, but at least it's making it to the concert hall here yeah. uh, with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, I'm glad to say. Now, I had a look at your Instagram account, and in the little bio, <laughs> it has hashtag cello, fine, hashtag viola de gamba, also fine, and then hashtag pasta. Oh, not like loves pasta or something? <laughs> <laughs> just, just hashtag pasta. I assume that's what you're trying to say, but uh, that's third to the two instruments, is it? <laughs> that's funny because for lunch today with Ash, who's um, one of the managing directors of the, of the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, we had pasta at my request. I don't know. I really love pasta and it's easy to cook and I'm not really into cooking and I'm not much of a chef at my house. I mean, I just... All right, so you're, too... not, you're not actually hand-making the pasta, No, well, I, I have... A machine for that. Uh, yeah, I can. Which is but in the cupboard. Yeah, it's in the cupboard. <laughs> it comes out like once every three years when an Italian friend comes over and I, yeah. And then <laughs> and they kind off. of do it. Yeah. Is that something you picked up living in Como? Yeah, exactly. I mean, living in Como, I loved eating pasta. I mean, everyone loves pasta. Yeah. You know, it's, even my sister who is celiac and gluten-free, like still is a lot of gluten-free pasta because it's so good. And I enjoy it and it's easy for me to cook and I never get tired of it. And one of my ex-boyfriends would say like, oh, we've had pasta like three times this week. And I said, three times? Is I have all? it twice. <laughs> I would have it twice a day. I mean, yeah. what's the problem? So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So apart from the pasta, what else do you like doing outside the professional work? Well, to be honest, I just really have fun working and it doesn't feel like so draining to me. I just, mm. I always have lots it's of work really to work, do. It's not really work, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it takes energy, but, and a lot of my socializing and friends. I mean, I just had lunch with a lot of cool people here and all based around music. It's just, there's so much to do. But if I actually have time alone and I don't want to do anything with cello or computer um, or teaching or preparing for a course that I'm teaching, sometimes I try to learn languages. Like I took a bunch of courses in German and I have to say, I kind of failed so far. It's just don't, can barely say anything. I <laughs> did, tried. Did you but, learn Italian or any Italian for when you were yes, there? Yes, I definitely speak Italian oh, well enough to get around. I mean, I haven't lived there in a while, so it's fading a bit. But right. And I also speak French because I live in a Francophone of place. Course. And I love love French and, and French culture or Quebec culture, I would say. So that's a lot of fun. I You know, I love some books as well. I also have... Two sisters, I think that you could call that a hobby, you know, keeping in touch, <laughs> texting, so important people. Well, that sounds wonderful. But uh, another piece of music now, and we're, we're straying uh, into, the, into the pop music genre again with some Billie Eilish. Why have you chosen this one? Well, when I was preparing the list, I thought these are things that I really enjoy listening to or playing uh, myself. 
And I think this was my number one played track on Spotify last year. So oh, when is, they send you the little thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. The end of the year, like, this is your number. This is your year. And I was like, it's true. I did listen to that a lot, sometimes on repeat. In the car, if I'm driving somewhere, I just think it's a really great song and moody. And I don't necessarily like all of her music, but I think that's a really cool and interesting young artist. And I try to keep up a little bit with some pop music and see what's going on. I love classical music so much, but pop music's great too. Depends on the piece. I had a dream. I got everything I wanted Not what you think And if I'm being honest It might have been a nightmare To anyone who might care Thought I could fly So I stepped off the golden from Billie Eilish. The choice of my guest in conversation today, cellist Eleanor Fry. Eleanor, before I let you go, uh, we'll have to, of course, have some of what you're going to be performing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. I don't think we can do much better than the Boccherini Cello Concerto, which you'll be performing, but I believe there's a very interesting story around this one in terms of uh, the versions of it that we might be used to and perhaps we shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. When I was growing up, if you played the, quote, Boccherini Cello Concerto, there was kind of only one. And it was in B-flat, and it was a kind of pastiche version of the one that I'm playing this week with Brandenburg. And what happened is in the 19th century, a cellist named Friedrich Gutzmacher um, often made his kind of, what do you call, arrangement or version or pastiche of pieces. And he kind of edited it himself and rewrote things. Um, And his version that he published of the Boccherini Cello Concerto in B-flat actually took a middle movement from a whole other cello concerto. And then he like changed around a bunch of things and added some other passages in the piece. And this is what people were learning up including me when I was, I think I learned it when I was 13. Yeah. Because like the famous Jacqueline Dupre recording. Jacqueline that's, Dupre, that's anybody who recorded in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that's just normal. That's what they thought. That That's okay. We just play this piece. It was edited by Grutzmacher. But then this whole historically informed performance movement, people started thinking, well, why don't we look at manuscripts or original editions and see what they might have played? And it turns out, 
that there's a perfectly fantastic second movement that is different and slightly different versions of the first and third movement that are just absolutely totally fine and great without changing and adjusting them. Um, so is it very common that those are the other 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 different versions of stuff out there that we don't yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was just a, just a different mindset back then. It's I think, oh well, I want to put my stamp on it, or I like this better. Or I think, okay, this is a really high passage, but it's awkward and too hard. So I'm going to put it in octave blow and make it into have a little bit more flowing in this way. People kind of suit it to their needs or to their level, or maybe they want to make it sound harder, mm. but actually feel less difficult. This was sort of typical of, of, of musicians to adjust for their needs. And sometimes people would add a piano part to a solo piece or make something solo that could have a bass line. I mean, it was a different mindset, um, which I think is totally fine too. Like I'd be happy <laughs> to make my own version as well. I'm ha All the cadenzas I'm playing are my own composition. And I think they reflect today's world, not just they're not completely some historical idea. So, yeah, it's a, just a different way of approaching music. And now we have our way that fits for our time. Mm. Just talking to you, we re I realise there is so much yet that we have to learn, isn't there? <laughs> Eleanor <laughs> and Fry. it will keep changing. Eleanor yeah. Fry, thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. Cellist Eleanor Fry. She's appearing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra for Spanish Steps with performances at the City Recital Hall Angel Place and the Melbourne Recital Centre until the 10th of March. Get along to brandenburg.com.au for the full set of dates and for tickets. That's the program for today. Remember, you can listen to the program at your leisure at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your podcast app. I'm Simon Moore. We'll go out with that little taste of what Eleanor will be playing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, the conclusion of Boccherini's Cello Concerto in B-flat.